Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Welcome, everyone, to our midweek Bible class. Uh, we appreciate you being here with us. Uh, I think we dodged the bad weather this week, and so hopefully we'll be able to have a, have a full, full class uh, period this time around. So, again, we're going to continue our class. Again, uh, let me back up. If you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're with us, and we want you to come back and be with us at every opportunity you have. We'll have more to say about that later. But we're continuing our class on fortifying our faith. We're um, looking at assuring and reassuring our faith. And I'm using this term rational belief. Our faith should be based on rational belief or one that is based on evidence so that we can be confident and have no basis for being shaken when we are opposed or when we're challenged. So that's kind of the theme for the class. So tonight we're going to conclude, I promise you, the question about has the Bible been corrupted? So we've, we've been on this now for several weeks and we're going to finish that up tonight. And if there's some time remaining at the end, we'll introduce the next topic. So remember that what we're doing in this particular part of the class is we're offering points for your consideration as proof that we have an accurate preservation of the original text. And we've gone through uh, quite a bit of technical detail. I know that some of it has been laborious. But remember the points that we were trying to make. Point number one was that the Greek text has been authenticated, and we spent a lot of time on that. Point number two was that the translation process works. It simply works. And we've gone through how, how it's carried out and how... Uh, the Bible has been transmitted through the ages to us. And now what we're looking at, and we'll finish up tonight with this, is that the translation differences are decipherable. So we can sort out differences when we see that one translation is one way and another is another way. And we looked at some examples last, last week about that. And so we're working our way through the history of the English Bible. And uh, this is where we're going to kind of accelerate but it's important for us to understand how we got the English Bible so that, again, we can be sure that what we have is the Word of God. So we had gotten to Miles Coverdale, 1535, and the thing to note about him is that he was the first person to complete the Old and New Testaments printed, printed in English. Um, Henry VIII broke with the... Wait a minute, I'm on the wrong one here. Let me back up. How did I do that? Oh, I keep going. I keep forgetting that uh, there's two buttons here. Sorry. <laughs> there we go. Henry VIII broke with the Roman Catholic Church in 1533 when he married Anne Boleyn. And so he tolerated Coverdale's work which relied on the work of Tyndale, also the Latin Vulgate, and 
uh, writings of Luther, which were in German, and many others. And so he put together a translation that was a complete printed version that had the Old Testament and the New Testament in English. All right, in 1537, we have Matthew's Bible. Now, there was a man named John Rogers who was writing under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthew. And so he was the one to put together the second complete printed Bible in English. And this is important because he abandoned Catholicism under Tyndale's influence. And since he was so anti-Catholic, he was arrested and eventually he was sentenced to death and he was burned at the stake in 1555. So this particular version or translation, I guess it is a version, uses Tyndale's Old Testament for Genesis through Chronicles and it uses Coverdale's for Ezra and the New Testament. So he based some of his work on those two earlier pieces of work. Then we have Taverner's Bible in 1539. This was Richard Taverner. This was the first Bible that was completely printed in England. That's why it is significant. Uh, it was largely based on Matthew's Bible. I keep forgetting it forward and with some slight adjustments. And we owe Tavener uh, for the use of, of certain changes of words that we even use today. And an example of that would be parable and Passover. So this is some of the, the important aspects about Tavener's Bible. Then we come along to something called the Great Bible, which is in, uh, dated 1539. There was a gentleman named Thomas Cromwell, and he was the secretary to Henry VIII. And he commissioned Coverdale, who we've already talked about, to oversee producing a large Bible. I mean, not, you know, many pages, but a mammoth Bible that could be placed in churches for members' use. And these Bibles were so large and valuable that they actually chained them to a podium in the buildings where they kept them, uh, obviously because of, of theft issues. It was based on Matthew's Bible, uh, New Testament and parts of the Old Testament were based on Tyndale, and then parts of the Old Testament were from uh, Coverdale, you know, Latin Vulgate, German, uh, the ones that we had mentioned earlier. So at this point in time, we are now looking at the final years of the rule of Henry VIII. And in his last years, he completely suppressed circulation of the Bible. And so Henry VIII dies in about January of 1547. And his son, Henry VI, came to the throne and relaxed the circulation of the Bible. So he was for the circulation of the Bible. And so many of the existing versions uh, were printed again and they were circulated. And this continued on until Edward died and Mary came to the throne. And Mary was not so friendly. And August 18th, or August 18th in 1553, the public reading of the Bible was prohibited by a royal proclamation. Bibles were confiscated, there were martyrs, and many of what we call the reformers fled to England 
and went to uh, fled, uh, fled from England, rather, I'm sorry, and went to Geneva. So that, that kind of leads us up to then the Geneva Bible, which is dated 1560. So those who were exiled in Geneva, which became the center of Calvinistic reform, printed their own Bible. About this same time, Elizabeth, back in England, had come to the throne uh, about a year and a half earlier. And so they presented this Bible to her as a gift. And in this Bible, there were notes uh, that were anti-Catholic and pro-Calvinistic. The other thing that's important about the Geneva Bible is that earlier Bibles really had no verse divisions. Instead, they were divided into sections like A, B, C, and D in the margins. Well, the Geneva Bible was the first one to make each verse a separate paragraph, and we even see this today, don't we, in a lot of the versions that we can pick up today. It also used italics for added words to complete the sense in English. And, and again, this is another practice that we can see today. Many times when you look in, in the, at a passage and you see something in italics, if you'll look in your marginal notes, most of the time it'll say that this was not in the original manuscript and was added. The Geneva Bible was the first English Bible to have marginal notes and have explanations. Uh, in other words, it was a first study Bible. And of course, many of these notes were to come back to opposite teaching and to uh, uh, basically defend their theology. This Bible was also favored by the Puritans, and it was, it was so popular that there were approximately 180 editions that were made. Uh, it's even said that Shakespeare, later on in plays, actually reflected some familiarity with the Geneva Bible. And also the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact was actually signed on a Geneva Bible. So it is, it is a significant Bible because it was a trendsetter in a lot of ways for uh, its time and then also for versions to come behind it. 1568, we come to Bishop's Bible. Matthew Parker orchestrated a revision with most of the work being done by bishops. And it was a revision of the Great Bible. So remember the big, large Bible. So it was considered to be, if you will, the second authorized English Bible since it was ordered to be placed in every cathedral and in every bishop's house. And it's interesting to know that about 4% of the form of the King James came from this particular version of the Bible, the Bishop's Bible. All right, next. 1582-1610, I think that's uh, because there was some type of revision to that, is the Rhymes-Douay Bible. This is another important Bible because it is the Catholic response to the Protestant translations during the reign of Elizabeth. And it was published by these English exiles from Rheims, France. It's primarily based on the Latin Vulgate. And if you remember back when we talked about this earlier, the Latin Vulgate is, is kind of, uh, it's kind of uh, late. In other words, it's young, right? It's not 
one of the older manuscripts, if you will. And it shows heavy Latin influence. And so there were numerous notes that were written in this particular version that responded to the claims of the Protestants. So you can see what's, what's going on here, right? All of this leads us up to the King James, 1611. And I've heard all kinds of jokes about the King James. I won't bring any of them up uh, tonight. Uh, I might offend somebody. But this was an attempt to bring some uniformity to what was going on. There were so many different English translations that this was an attempt to bring some type of resolution to all these different flavors, if you will. So a project was proposed in 1604 at a conference called the Hampton Court Conference, which was a conference where the leaders of the Church of England would meet. And this particular proposal caught King James's fancy, and he championed it. He promoted it. And so there were 54 translators that were enlisted to take this, this effort on, and then there was a final committee of 12. And so like every translation, the King James had a host of critics, right? There's, there's no translation or version that we have even today that doesn't have a set of critics. Uh, for one, it, it contained the Apocrypha. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Apocrypha is, it literally means extra books. And those, those books, if you will, have over time, through textual criticism, been shown to not have the signs of inspiration. Now, you're going to get a lot of people who will disagree with that. You know, if you look at a Catholic Bible today, you'll see that it has the Apocrypha in it. And there's lots of opinions about that. But suffice it to say that this was actually controversial. Uh, it also contained alternate readings in the margins. So you would have the passage, and then you would have an actual alternate reading. Now, this is in the original King James, the one from 1611. And, of course, since that time, it's undergone many, many, many revisions. Now, why is that? Well, in the original, there were numerous words, of course, which now really don't have any meaning. And, and there was a, a large list that I could have shown you, but I just picked out a few of them. Um, the phrase, ouches of gold. Ouches, not ounces. Ouches of gold. Um, you Star Wars fans that use the word Sith in it. Um, and then they had this phrase I liked, vein jangling. I didn't take the time to figure out where vein jangling was used, but uh, obviously those aren't used today, even in the Queen's English, right? Uh, the proper speaking English over in uh, the UK. Uh, but there's, there's also a large number of words that are still used today, but obviously the meanings have changed. Uh, an example is meat. Prevent conversation. Conversation is um, a way of life. So you'll, you'll hear that term used in the King James, or you'll see it used in the King James. So all of this really illustrates a really important point for us to think about. When a translation occurs, not only are humans fully capable of translating from the parent language into the receptor language. Remember we said the parent language was the Greek in the New Testament. The receptor language for us is English. But they're also able to discern the changes in meaning 
of the language that occur over time. In other words, English does not stay still. Um, it's not static. Koine Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was, was primarily written in, we talked about that earlier, it is what we would call a dead language. It was frozen. It was frozen in time, and so we can go back to that time period and we can know exactly when we do the parsing with the good, the, the, the good scholarship, we can know what the words actually meant. But the English, English language, I can't even talk tonight, I can't even speak English, sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. The English language has continued to change, so much so that English dictionaries sometimes record up to or more thousands of new words and new word meanings very frequently, on a frequent basis. So it's difficult to track which words are going out of use. So you can kind of see, we talked about how difficult the translation process is. So as people are doing the translation, these are the types of things that they have to consider. So languages are always in a constant state of flux. And so therefore, to get to God's word from Greek into English, or any other language for that matter, new translations are really going to become inevitable. And so that really shouldn't bother us. So um, after passing beyond the King James, then we come to the rest of what we call the major English translations. It was about 250 years before another major translation took place. And it was at that time that the British decided to take the King James edition and make a new edition. And so in about 1885, we have what we call the English Revised Version. And this was put together by a committee of people to revise the King James. And the interesting thing about this is that they included some Americans in the project. So it was, a, it was primarily English, but there were some Americans included in this project. So probably one of the most important works for us in the States was put together and released in 1901, and it's called the American Standard Versions. The Americans were concerned about the English that was being used in the ERV. It had too many Britishisms in it, if you will. And so... There were just too many words in the ERV that would be known to English people, but would not have really been a good choice for people who are American. So a group of translators got together, and they decided to make a more suitable version for an American audience. And so, hence, the American Standard Version. And it's actually, uh, again, been dubbed an outstanding version it is a literal translation. Remember how we talked about dynamic equivalence? We talked about formal equivalence. You know, you hear the terms idiomatic. You'll hear the terms complete equivalence. All these, all these different things, right? Well, this is a literal translation. And we remember how we talked about what the goal in a literal translation is, is to take the original word and try to put it in a word in the receptor language. And sometimes that's very, very difficult to get the sense. And thus, you have to do things like put words in italics and things like that. So that's the American Standard Version. The Revised Standard Version came along in 1952, and it was an attempt to revise the American Standard Version. Now, I will say this. If any of you uh, uh, like to look at different translations and you don't have them in print, it's very easy to find them online. Uh, you can go to BibleStudyTools.com. Bible 
uh, or it's called Crossway or Crosswalk or something like that. They've got, I think, one of the most comprehensive lists that you can access any of these translations. I use a free uh, piece of software called eSword, and you can buy a lot of the add-on modules that have all of these in it. Some of you may use, some of you who are uh, richer than I am may use Logos, uh, which is probably the best piece of software. Uh, it's for uh, people with money and heavy-duty uh, who are really in heavy duty and studying. I find eSword does very well for what I, what I do. So you can find any of these on there, and it's always interesting to compare and contrast them. All right, so revised standard version, 1952. An attempt to, was made to revise the ASB. Then we come to the New English Bible, which is in 1970. Another well-known version from 1970 was the New American Standard Bible, um, which is very interesting to look at. Um, you'll find sometimes... Uh, some very interesting takes on some passages in the New American Standard. I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm just saying it's it's enlightening to take a look at it. You have something called the Today's English Version, 1976. Then along came the New International Version in 1978. Now, the, the NIV is probably one of the most popular versions in use. Again, it's just like every other version. It has its uh, good and bad points. And remember that it is one of the major versions that is based on the idiomatic approach or the dynamic equivalent approach. Remember, what happens there is the translator tries to get in the head of the original author and understand the thought process and then bring that forward, not word for word, but the thought process into the receptor language. Then along came... The New King James Version, 1980, again, another very, very popular version. Um, if I had to guess, if I took a, a poll in here, I would dare say that most of us probably have the New King James Version as our primary version. I happen to like the ESB. Uh, actually, I skipped one here, didn't I? Yeah, after the New King James came the New Revised Standard Version, and then lastly, the ESV. And again, the ESV is not without its problems. It was done in the spirit, if you will, of a literal translation, much like the ASV was. But there are points in it that you have to watch. And this is, again, why it's good when you're studying to read and compare and contrast the different versions. But again, the whole point we're trying to make here is that any differences that you see, they're decipherable. Right? You can determine what they are. You can get to the bottom of it. And if you put all of it together, then you can actually get the sense of what the original author intended to the original audience. And then you can take that and you can try to make application today. So again, there are many other translations that, or versions rather, that we did not really talk about, but these are the most recognizable versions that are out there. All right, so the question then is this. Do we have the original? You know, the multitude, especially of English translations, may make it seem as if we really don't know if we have the original or not, if you think about it. But if one will use what I've termed here the, the reputable reputable translations, and do what the Bible tells us to do, and that's to study, right? The Bible tells us to study. So 
We need to do that. We can resolve any differences. And I think that we can reach satisfactory conclusions when we do this. So ultimately, the differences that we see are really, when you do the scholarship and you do the study, not consequential to doctrine and don't put our soul salvation in jeopardy. That's the point. So we really need to be careful about making any differences that we see bigger than they actually are. Now, I have known people who do that. I've known people that will tell you, if you don't use a certain version, then you're wrong. And they make it a test of fellowship. And I would respond to that by saying that that's just simply wrong. Now, that's just my opinion. That's Mark Bailey's opinion. That's not reflective of the elders. I don't know where they stand on this, but I'm sure that... uh, I may get talked to after this. No, I'm just joking. But anyway, I, I don't believe that you can say, because remember, we've talked about the translation process. And remember, the translations are done by uninspired men, but they're doing their best, if they do good scholarship, to get to the original and bring it to us today. So, there are more translations in English than any other language in the world, and why is that? It's because it is the uh, language of business of the world. Uh, It is the most spoken language in the entire world. Um, I've traveled internationally all over the world, and I've talked to people who work in hotels, and I'm sure Brother James has done this as well. And you'll, you'll ask them what their background is, and you'll say, well, why, you know, why are you working here? And, well, I can make more money because I speak English. Right? So they'll a lot of times work in that type of industry in these other countries because they tend to cater to Westerners. And so it is the most spoken language. And so we're blessed, aren't we, to be able to have the Word of God in our native tongue. So the question again is, how do we know that the Bible has been preserved accurately? Has the Bible been corrupted? Well, the points we tried to make were the Greek text has been authenticated, the translation process works, and the translation differences are decipherable. So we don't have to worry. We shouldn't have to worry. We shouldn't have to walk around in doubt. And when we're challenged, we should be able to be confident and to be able to give an answer concerning the reason for believing that the Bible has not been corrupted and that what we have is the Word of God. Now, if we don't do our homework, if we don't do what the Bible tells us to do, and that's study and show ourselves approved to God, then we probably won't be confident in being able to do that. And so when we do get challenged, we may buckle under that challenge, and it may lead to us losing our faith. And we certainly don't want that to happen. So, Okay, Mark, what does all this really mean? You know, what's the implication for this? Uh, you know, why, why have we spent all this time? Well, it's because of this. All humans can know the truth. And again, we're blessed in the fact that even in almost every language known to man, the Bible has been translated into it. And so what are these truths that we can know? Well, we can know that God exists because the Bible tells us so. We can know that the Bible is His Word. It's God-breathed. We can know that only Christianity will really provide us with salvation. Right? There is no other name. 
under which heaven, under heaven, which men can be saved by. It tells us that we have to obey the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, the Bible tells us what it is. First Corinthians chapter 15, it's the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord. And it has an implication on my life. You know, it tells me how I need to live. It tells me how I need to worship. It tells me how I need to, uh, uh, build relationships with each other. And so the bottom line is, and I repeat this, is that everyone can know the truth. Now, there are going to be those who will come up with every esoteric edge case that you can come up with known to man that will challenge that, but I'm just offering this for your consideration as a proof that we are without excuse. Everyone in this room tonight is certainly without excuse. We have no exceptions, and it's my contention that we have the Word of God available to us. We made it. Aren't you happy? Because I've, I've beat this topic to death now for several weeks. So does anybody have any comments before we transition to our next topic? Yes, sir. I have. Uh, James brought up the Blue Letter Bible. It's an excellent source. You can go on there, and it's really good to give you the original word and to give you all the different contexts that it was used in and give you uh, even sometimes the parsing of it, you know, the, the senses and uh, all that. It's, it's a really good tool. Blue Letter Bible. Uh, again, there's so much information on the Internet the Internet's a great tool. Of course, you can get in trouble with the Internet, but it's also a great tool. And um, I've actually got a whole bunch of stuff. I think I've mentioned to you before that I've taught a class called How to Study the Bible, and uh, I go through all that. And But my primary uh, tool that I use is eSword. Uh, I have it on my phone. I have it on my iPad. I've got it on my laptop. You know, I've got it everywhere. And there's a lot of it's free. But there's also a lot of add-on modules you can buy. Anything else? All right. Well, we're going to move on to a new topic. Uh, let's swap out the slides here. So what we've done uh, is we did an introduction in the class, right? We talked about faith and reason. We talked about the Word of God, the Bible. We talked about an by asking the question, has the Bible been corrupted? And hopefully now we've proven that point. So now we're going to change our focus and our attention on attacks against God himself. And so we're going to begin by taking a look at the problem of evil. So where are we going here? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get as much of this as I can in this week and next week, and then I'm going to turn it over to Tom Collier, who's going to talk for the, probably the next three weeks after that about science and faith or however long he wants to talk. You know, we'll box him into three weeks. And because we've got after him, we've got Ben coming up then, and Ben's going to talk for us about two or three times uh, in the session about how to be a New Testament Christian in culture. And I think he's going to present you with a lot of interesting things that maybe you haven't thought about. And then I'm going to ask for Paul to let me come back in after that finish up what uh, we're going to begin probably here because where I want to go with this is I want to talk about, I want to use this discussion as a basis for some other topics that really are probably 
showstoppers for people when it comes to believing in God. So we want to try to attack those and we want to try to offer up things for your consideration. And again, all of this information is being presented to you and the, the, the goal or the hope is that it will interest you and that you will take ownership of it. Uh, you will check it out yourself, First Thessalonians 5.21, and it will strengthen your faith and hopefully not cause you to lose your faith. That's not our goal in this class, obviously. All right, so we're going to talk about the problem of evil. So a gentleman named John S. Feinberg said this, probe an atheist or an agnostic deeply enough about why they doubt God's existence, and he or she will likely recount for you the problem of evil. This problem keeps many from faith in God altogether and rattles the faith of even the staunchest believers. So as Feinberg stated, this has been argued as being one of, if not, the biggest threat threat to belief in God and the biblical worldview. This is a huge, huge issue. All right, so there's three general ways that we can think of when we think about relating God and evil. So the first one is this. The atheist will affirm the reality of evil and will firmly deny the existence of God because of it. A second way of looking at it is the pantheist, or the one who believes in many gods, will affirm the existence of God, but deny the reality of evil. Interesting. But there's a third way, and what we want to say is that the theist will attempt to show that while it's true that evil is real, it's also true that God does exist. And so it's this last point that we want to make as our goal. We want to demonstrate that last point. And we want to do it in a reasonable way, right? We want to have, we want to bring out our rational belief again, which remember we said that our faith is a willing commitment based on an informed intellect. We want to make commitment based on evidence. Commitment without evidence, remember, we said was foolish. We want to make our commitment based on evidence. So, we say then that the approach here is going to be a bit academic, okay? Again, like many of the things we've done in this class. But we have to do this because those who challenge us the most are the academics. They're the smart people, right? And that's what scares people. Well, if all the smart people don't believe in God, then what does that say about me? Number one, it either says I'm stupid, right? Which they would say I probably am stupid. Or they might be wrong. What a a thought. So we're going to take an academic approach to this because, again, what we're trying to do is fortify our faith, right? Reassure reassure ourselves as believers. Be prepared to... to, uh, if not answer the opposition, but at least to be able to engage intelligently in conversation with them. But we want to say this, though. This discussion really doesn't help much or offer anything, any kind of emotional support to someone who is suffering. Because when you are suffering, 
you probably don't really care about the theology part of evil, <laughs> right? And so what I just stated was another tripping point for many people, suffering. And so how does that work together? How does evil and suffering work together? And how can we deal with this as believers in God and Christians? All right, so we've got to start by approaching a definition. But what we're going to do here is we're going to approach a definition of evil without using the Bible, right? Why are we doing that? We're going to do it because we can't use that with someone who doesn't believe in God or a skeptic, an unbeliever, an infidel, whatever you want to call them. So we want to try to appeal to their mindset and their thought process. So several have attempted to try to do this. They've, if you go research this, there are many, many people who have, who have uh, made attempts at trying to define evil. And so I want us to look at a, at, at a few. Um, and what you're going to find is that a lot of times in these definitions, there is a reference to suffering. So there's a gentleman named Randy Alcorn, and he's a very popular Christian book writer and speaker. And he, he defines evil as this. Evil is. It's a fundamental and troubling departure from goodness. The Bible uses the word evil to describe anything that violates God's moral will. The first human evil occurred when even Adam disobeyed God. And from that original sin, a moral evil came the consequences of suffering. And although suffering results from moral evil, it is distinguishable from it just as an injury caused by drunken driving isn't synonymous with the offense. Now, I said we were going to try to do this without the Bible. Well, Randy Alcorn references the Bible, right? Um, but he doesn't necessarily try to use book, chapter, and verse to defend his definition of evil. So Alcorn goes on and he says this. He speaks of two types of evil, if you will. The immoral things we do are primary evil, while the consequences we suffer are the secondary evils. So he just got through saying that suffering and evil were, uh, suffering was not evil, but notice what he's saying here. Secondary evils point to primary evils, reminding us that humanity Guilty of sin deserves suffering. He just got through saying that secondary evil is suffering. So what we can conclude by looking closely at his definition is he also really is saying that suffering is evil. And so here's something to think about, though. What about those who suffer innocently? Or what about suffering that is not the consequence of evil activity? So we find this definition to fall short. This is my opinion again. Uh, you can disagree with me, but this is, this is what I'm going to uh, propose to you. All right, so let's look at another definition. This is from a gentleman named Norman Giesler. He was a very popular evangelical apologist. He was very well known. He wrote numerous books on Christian apologetics. And in fact, uh, I would dare say that he was 
a thought leader in his time. He just recently died not very long ago. And he had this to say, Evil is not a substance, but a corruption of the good substances God made. Evil is like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It is a lack in good things, but it is not a thing in itself. Now that's very important. Latch on to that phraseology. Evil is like a wound in an arm or moth holes in a garment. It exists only in another, but not in itself. And so I'm not going to go into that here as much as I am in the next definition because it'll become more evident when we talk about evil being a thing in and of itself. But anyway, if you go on and you study and you read some of the things that Norm Giesler wrote, he also thought that suffering was evil. All right, so the definition that I like, and since I'm kind of leading the discussion, I can choose the ones I like, is the one by Brother Thomas B. Warren. Now, who was Thomas B. Warren? He was, first of all, a New Testament Christian. He was a philosopher and an apologist. He was a great author, and he was a debater. At one point in time, he was actually the head of the Bible department at Fried Hardman, I think it was from like 1964 to 1971. He started a college called Fort Worth Bible College. He was the president of that college. Later on, he taught at the Harding Graduate School of Religion. So he, he was a, <clears throat> an excellent uh, thinker, uh, and he was an excellent debater. And in fact, he debated at the time one of the foremost atheists, Antony Flew. So some of you may remember him. He was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. He uh, happened to be in a Socratic club, if you will, at Oxford with C.S. Lewis and oftentimes would spar with C.S. Lewis. So Thomas B. Warren debated him, I believe, in 1976. And you can find that debate in its entirety, the whole video series. I haven't had the opportunity to, to completely watch all of it yet. But it's on WVBS. World Video Bible School, and I recommend that we all, as we have time, go take a look at that. Interesting thing about Anthony Flew is before he died, he became a believer, and he wrote a book. He was actually a deist. Uh, he wasn't uh, uh, a New Testament Christian, unfortunately, but he did die a believer in God, so he changed his position after many years. And the thing that he did, probably, that really sunk him in the debate, was he took the affirmative that he was going to prove that God did not exist. And you just can't do that. You cannot do it. So, uh, so to speak, Thomas B. Warren ate his lunch. Uh, so, anyway. Alright, so what I want to do, and we'll just get started with this, because Thomas B. Warren defines evil in a series of five questions. Okay, so we'll get started on this, and then we'll try to elaborate on this as we move forward next week. All right? So question number one is this. One pertinent question is, what is intrinsically good? That is, what is good in and of itself? 
meaning an end and not merely as a means to an end. So what is good? Vital to the proper answer to this question is the recognition of God's purpose in creating man. Why did God create man? He created him for sonship with himself, in other words, a relationship with him, and concomitantly, big word that I never use, as you can tell, that means concurrently or at the same time. That's really what it means. He was using the, the Queen's English there, I think. At the same time, for brotherhood with his fellow man. Thus, whatever is filial, another fancy word for family, whatever is family, and fraternal is intrinsically good. It is intrinsically good to believe in God, to honor God, to obey God. It is intrinsically good to become a son of God and to live as a son of God. Whatever is filial and or fraternal can never, under any circumstance, be evil. Okay, I will leave you with that. I want you to think about that tonight when your head hits the pillow. I want you to think about Thomas B. Warren and that very difficult question to read. But we'll go, we'll repeat it next week and we'll go into a definition of evil and we'll go from there. Thank you. Appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.